We are in the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to Stop Talk Radio, the world for people who think. Hi everyone. Hello everybody. This week we are talking with Greg Palast. Greg is an investigator of corporate fraud and racketeering turned journalist, and a man that the members of the elite just love to hate. War criminal Tony Blair labeled him a liar. A White House spokesman simply stated, we hate that son of a bitch. But to the rest of us, Palast is one of the most important investigative reporters of our time, who deserves our appreciation for his untiring work and exposing the unbelievable levels of corruption that, that define modern political and corporate policies. As part of his investigation into the 2000 U.S. presidential election, Greg uncovered evidence that Florida Governor Jeb Bush, Florida Secretary of State Catherine Harris, and Florida Elections Unit Chief Clay Roberts, along with Choice Point Corporation, rigged the ballots in 2000. He also discovered later that there was also widespread uh, election fraud again in the 2004 presidential, ele- presidential elections. Uh, Greg is the author of New York Times bestseller, The Best Democracy Money Can Buy, as well as Democracy and Regulation, How the Public Can Govern Essential Services, and Armed Madhouse, Undercover Dispatches from a Dying Regime. His documentary films include Bush Family Fortunes, The Assassination of Hugo Chavez, Billionaires and Ballot Bandits, and Vultures and Vote Rustlers. His latest book is Vultures Picnic, In Pursuit of Petroleum Pigs, Power Pirates, and high finance carnivores. So, uh, welcome to the show, Greg. Glad to be with you guys. All righty. Um, the first thing that uh, kind of comes to mind, having watched your documentaries, watched your films, and read your books, is uh, to kind of go back in time a little bit. Um, it's maybe fair to say that you first came to fame or maybe infamy. Uh, back in 1997 or 98 when you reported on the cash for question scandal in the UK. And this was an event that put a serious dent in the outpouring of collective joy from the British people at the election of uh, war criminal Tony Blair. Um, And you also, in in your books uh, and in your your recent films, you also talk about Piers Morgan as the then editor-in-chief of the UK Daily Mirror and the hit pieces he wrote about you in an effort to protect the Blair government. So um, is it fair to say that's when you first really kind of got in trouble? Well, uh, trouble is my business. Yeah. (laughs) uh, Sam Spade used to say. um, uh, Before I I did this work, I did those investigations of Tony Blair and his corporate buck buddies um, for The Guardian and Observer and then later BBC, uh, that was actually my first gig as a journalist. Um, up until that point, I'd just been a, an investigator of corporate uh, uh, criminality and shenanigans, a lot of it for the, uh, for the federal, U.S. federal government and then later labor unions and others. So I've been just, I was basically an investiga- investigator, but I was finding that the media, especially the American media, 
was not covering corporate fraud. They were, in fact, uh, covering up for corporate fraud. And so I decided I better become a, a journalist myself to get these stories out, and I ended up uh, – couldn't get any of this stuff on the air in the U.S., but I, I sent a couple quick reports to the, uh, to the Guardian. They said, hey, this stuff could bring down the government. So the, the Guardian invited me to, uh, to write a column, uh, first the Observer and then do investigative reports. And they said, listen, um, I was actually – believe it or not, for those who don't know Greg Powell's my background, I was actually an advisor to Tony Blair when he was in opposition. Mm-hmm. So I knew his whole crowd. I uh, hung out with uh, Blair and his uh, deputy, uh, John Prescott, uh, a kind of useless piece of real estate. Nice guy. Yeah. <laughs> and, How did you end um, up an advisor? How did you end up an advisor? Well, you know, Blair, Blair loved, had this, like, complete fascination with American experts and consultants. And so he got talked into hiring me to go after the, if you remember, after Thatcher privatized the power companies mm-hmm. and, and BG and BP and the, and the electric mm-hmm. companies in particular, um, you know, um, Blair was running on the platform that he was going to put a limit on the power companies, just like, you know, just uh, like you have Miliband uh, right now talking about putting a cap on the prices of power companies. Well, um, I was... Uh, you know, one of the international recognized experts in that field. So Blair brought me in to advise him how to control the big corporations. But what I realized very quickly in dealing with Mandelson and Blair and their crowd was that they were looking for, and they were going at also attacking nuclear power, that they were going to, their whole purpose was to get some great PR lines and win votes. And it took me about 12 seconds to realize that these guys were using me to win votes, but had no intention, like dead zero, of putting in any policy to protect the public. In fact, they were getting, it was clear that they were getting a lot of uh, cash and help from the very industries that they were pretending that they were going to try to control. So you had a con. And, and I saw, look, you see this again and again. I see this with Barack Obama. I see this with Bush, obviously, but Bush was a little more open, you know. Um, yeah. I think it's even worse when you get the, the guys who are pretending to be on your side. Say, oh, we're going to take on these big powers. And and interestingly, even my sister, who uh, was uh, Bill Clinton's expert on minimum wage, was brought in by Blair to, to help, you know, oh, we'll help uh, to come up with a plan to raise the minimum wage. What was quickly determined was that he's looking for a way to talk about the minimum wage without mm-hmm. actually – uh, setting one. So, it, so Blair was like, mm-hmm. I looked at Blair as a box of gears with a smile painted on the front. Yeah. Uh, what I didn't, I was actually wrong about that. Um, and I, and then after, once he got into office, I realized that in fact, he wasn't just a fake creation of PR, um, uh, of PR firms and, and um, polling uh, uh, experts. But rather, he was like a fanatic on the order of Ayatollah Khomeini. He was a <laughs> globalizer. He actually was far more fanatic than Margaret Thatcher about the free market and globalization because she saw it as just you know one way to bust the unions and all the people that she despised, which in other words, people mm-hmm. not like her. Mm-hmm. And um, whereas Blair was a believer, because he's not too bright. I mean, one thing, I, one thing, one little thing I've never really published make clear knowing Blair, he's actually not a very bright man. And, uh, you know, I will say Bill Clinton's a very bright man. Um, Obama's a strangely bright man. George Bush is a bright man. 
but uh, way un- uh, misunderestimated, he, he would say, but Blair was not <laughs> kind of a, a dullard. And so dullards tend to like hold on to um, you know, uh, uh, theories that they don't understand. So they, they pick up phrases like globalization, free markets, and this is the future, and blah, blah, blah. But they, third way, they have no idea what they're talking about because they're not too, too smart, and they get manipulated easily. So I ended right. up being hired to, to set up a fake front. I mean, I was hired by the Guardian. said, look into this. I, you know, there's been a lot of stories about Blair and lobbyists, corporate lobbyists, and I was an investigator. I'd never done journalism. So I didn't know. I thought, wow, okay, let's go. And actually the Guardian was shocked because it's been like 10,000 pounds. They set up a fake front with, a, with a, an operation out of the Tower Hotel in London. And I, was, I had set myself up. I, I set up an entire elaborate front to make it look as if I were a consultant for a little-known Texas company called Enron. <laughs> but Blair and Mandelson knew who Enron was. They were the go-go boys with all the money. Mm-hmm. And I was I set up a deal, and, and this is important for Americans listening too. I set up a deal where um, I said, look, you have to tell me if I you know, if I pay money, what do I get? What what policies can I buy? I want to know exactly what I'm buying, you know. And they said, Oh, these, these lobbyists who are who are like in with Blair and, and Mandelson like uh, Dolly Draper and others, um, mm-hmm. um, and real close with Ed Balls. Um, were saying, oh, we did this. I said, no, no, no. I don't want to say, don't tell me what you did. I'm working, these guys from Enron, I mean, these are guys in Texas who just started wearing shoes two years ago. They don't want to hear about, they don't want to hear baloney. I need, I need hard evidence, written proof that you guys have put in the fix. Let's not Mm -hmm. dance around this. And sure enough, I was getting faxes with the hard, cold, written evidence of uh, fixes by uh, Enron, Tesco, um, and, uh, you know, uh, Murdoch. Wow. Yeah. It was like, it was insane. And uh, Mandelson was really, <laughs> was like the ringleader of, of basically selling off the government. I was with a Confederate uh, of mine uh, and, uh, who was helping me set this up from big uh, uh, from the same company as uh, Greg, Glenn Greenwald, Booz Allen Hamilton, who was helping mm-hmm. me. Set up the front, and he said, "Hey, why are we doing this for the Guardian? Let's just buy a submarine and um, sell it to the Chinese. We can make millions." <laughs> I was invited into Ten Downing Street. I was invited yeah. to Ten Downing Street uh, by uh, Blair's guys. It was a riot, um, and then you we decided got, we had to just publish. <laughs> yeah, you've obviously got some serious schmoozing abilities going on there, you know, to, to get in. Those guys obviously wow. didn't expect you were. They didn't see you coming, obviously. They didn't expect that there was any... No, because they knew me. I I lied and said, you know, listen, I can't... They said, they knew I wrote for The Guardian, that I just started writing for The Guardian, and they said, and I said, look, I I was like Dolly Draper who was working for the, uh, writing for the uh, Evening Standard, but in fact, he was just placed there um, to be a corporate stooge and and say whatever Gordon Brown and and Peter Mandelson wanted him to say in the paper. So Mm -hmm. I said, look, I'm in the same situation. I've got eight acres on the beach. I've got stables and ponies. I don't get paid. The Guardian doesn't pay for that. Hmm. Um, it, was, it was a fraud. I was lying, but they assumed I was as corrupt as they were. So, oh, you know, yeah. and so they, they, they talked on tape. I was wired. It was a great time. And um, 
<laughs> Unfortunately, um, I, what I didn't know is I didn't know how closed the British system was. For example, I got calls from Downing Street inviting me in, and they denied it. And I said, well, just ask for the, for, the, for the records of the calls from Downing Street. I didn't realize that unlike the U.S., you can't ask public servants to provide their public records. I mean, you can't mm-hmm. get away with it in America anymore. They give you all kinds of national security excuses. They'll, they'll say, oh, we can't release that. Al-Qaeda will, will look at our phone bills. You know I mean? But um, at the time, in America, I could get a list of phone calls made by the president. Mm-hmm. And, but yeah, I couldn't get can't. Blair's uh, calls to me. Mm-hmm. He just denied it. He said I was a liar. You interacted directly with uh, those kind of elite people. From those mm-hmm. years of interaction, uh-huh. what did you conclude about their psychological profile? What are the specifics? Well, two things. I think that when you see movies like Wall Street and, you know, Wolf of Wall Street, things mm-hmm. like that, you have guys, that, the, the, the ultra-rich manipulators are seen as really brilliant people who know that they're doing evil things and they enjoy doing evil things. They're like Professor Moriarty in, uh, mm. in Sherlock Holmes. In fact... Half of the, some of them are really quite brilliant, really sick, brilliant people. But uh, like Paul the Vulture Singer, who's in my latest film of uh, Vultures and Vote Rustlers, uh, he's mm-hmm. known as the Vulture. He's mm-hmm. a fabulously brilliant billionaire. I, I'm not going to take away his brilliance. But the, none of them actually believe they're doing evil. They believe that, you know, at, as Lloyd Blankfein, uh, who was, who's the head of Goldman Sachs, said, we're doing God's work. Mm-hmm. They are followers. Now, remember, I went to school with these guys. Uh, I, was, uh, a, I was a protege of Milton Friedman, the, the right-wing dwarf, the evil little <laughs> right-wing free marketeer. I was, I was a protege of Friedman. And, and I knew a lot of these guys who became these, the billionaire hedge fund monsters. And they were all followers of the philosophy of the crypto-fascist philosopher Joseph Schumpeter. And uh, who believed in something called creative destruction. So they actually believe that even if people suffer, and you know, like like I, you know, in in my film, I talk, I take you up the Congo River for BBC actually for Newsnight, and you meet you know kids dying of cholera because the cholera medicine money has been taken by these financiers. They still believe that they are doing God's work. That they are basically creative destruction means kind of wiping the planet queen of losers and and welfare philosophies etc and what will return in it it will there'll be like a new millennium in its place it's you know just you know it's kind of uh, redolent of of you know the the marxist post-proletarian dictatorship uh paradise except that it's um it's a kind of a right-wing free market uh, fascist free-for-all that everyone will be uh Live a better life, but so you have creative destruction. But I've only seen destruction, never the creation. That's the problem. <laughs> yeah, you know. And those guys obviously don't really get down and get their hands dirty or, or see any of the results of their actions, right? Uh, or maybe rarely they, do, now, and they just don't care. Now that's actually you just brought up something very fascinating about what they see. For example, Paul the Vulture Singer, the, one of the most vicious billionaires on the planet, he's the one who's funding. He's the number one funder of uh, of gay rights in America. Oh. The entire uh-huh. – he provided almost all the money for the fight for the uh, uh, fight for uh, the right uh, for gay people to be married because his son's gay, who, who, by the way, if he's listening, he's in London uh, and wanted to marry a guy. So it's kind of like the Lord of the Manor who, you mm-hmm. know, um, 
they used to have a, the rule that Lord of Manor could deflower anyone on his yeah on his land. So it's kind of like it's kind of the modern version. You can sleep with whomever you want if you're the Lord of the Manor. So he would buy new new laws, um, and so he's. So, but it's a great cover. What he's found is that he gets tremendous praise from progressives by being for gay marriage, while he is. Um, and I, and I want to thank Peter Thatchell for for calling this out and, and attacking some of his fellows in the, the gay rights movement for taking blood money from people who have been um, basically uh, have blood on their hands in Africa. He says, you know, <laughs> our rights shouldn't be dependent on someone else's. Uh, Misery and Suff- death and suffering, disease. Yeah. yeah. So um, they, they don't. They don't. They see themselves as grand, as grand visionaries to which normal law shouldn't apply because, you know, they have a bigger vision than us little little people can ever mm-hmm. understand. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's hard. It's hard they to take believe. that in, but they're believers it's, it's almost like a religion or a kind of a faith yeah. that they have in themselves and their own power yeah. and but it's destroying they have the planet great, it's, yeah they have great faith in themselves and and you also and i would agree with one thing unlike you know i go out and find their victims yeah we had one guy um you'll see if you read my book billionaires and ballot bandits i'll give a plug to my not for profit uh-huh. foundation which sells this Crap! It was a big New York Times bestseller, Billionaires of Alabama, which you get at GregPalace.com. And it talks about a guy, John Paulson. This guy yeah. bet that um, what he did was he sold Royal Bank of Scotland through Goldman Sachs. He and Goldman Sachs got together through Royal Bank of Scotland, said, we're going to invest in the California real estate market because we think it's going to head, it's going to recover. But they actually believed it would die. So while they're selling Royal Bank of Scotland all this toxic derivatives, betting on the California real estate market rising, they knew it was going to fall apart. In fact, they made sure it did by by making sure that they uh, loaded up on and made sure that people got these terrible what are called subprime mortgages, where your where your rates triple and your uh, mortgage payments triple in a couple of years, and there's no way people could survive this. And so, of course, the mortgage market collapsed. Royal Bank of Scotland went bankrupt and was taken over by the British people. John Paulson personally made $3 billion on that ripoff of Royal Bank of Scotland and the poor people. And so I actually went and met some of the people who lost their homes in this scheme. I don't care about the Royal Bank of Scotland. England, it's about time you guys paid tribute to our corporations in America. Um, so Royal Bank of Scotland was demolished and became a, a state award. Um, and but I introduced you to, to people like um, this guy John Pratt, uh, Mr. Pratt, who's who lost his home in the Eight Mile section of Detroit. His uh, he had to move to a crappy or even a worse neighborhood where his uh, 12-year-old son was shot in the head by some gangs um, at uh, just trying to play in the backyard. Uh, lost everything he had because his mortgage rates were tripled under these crazy mortgage schemes that Paulson's buddies had put together. And Paulson literally pulls $3 billion and is feted as a great progressive. Again, he's for gay marriage rights, you know. Mm. You can do anything you want as long as you're for gay marriage. Just so you know, in America, you can do any. You can take a, a three-year-old poor kid, chop them in seven pieces, and say, I did it because I wanted to just raise some money for gay rights. 
Um, mm-hmm. And not that I'm against gay rights. This is a great cover. You see, listen, yeah. Amnesty International is the greatest, one of the greatest uh, um, protectors of uh, corporate killers uh, in, in the planet. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, so you know, there's all kinds of covers. But these guys actually believe their own baloney. So they actually believe they're doing the right thing by clearing out the system of the weaklings, uh, like you and me. Uh, but yeah. they don't see the effects. They don't see. They actually were not going to go to the eight mile section of Detroit and go to the people left between the bankrupted and busted out houses. They're not going to go to the to the auto parts plants that have been shut down. They're not going to go to the people uh, who work for Royal Bank of Scotland and now are unemployed and don't know what to mm. do next. They, they don't meet those people and they don't care. They go to dinners being um, in which they are lauded as philanthropists because they give one half of 1% of their money to some to Amnesty International. So it's not a question of them not knowing the, the results of their actions. It's that they don't care. That's what you're saying. They don't care, but again, they often don't see it face-to-face. Like, I'll give you a very interesting example. Um, if you read, um, it might be in Vulture's Picnic, uh, which is my book about my life in investigative reporting. Mm-hmm. And if you don't like uh, drunkenness, sex, and and, um, and politics, don't read it. But the, uh, <laughs> That's a great book. Uh, but the, you know, there was a, a vice president of Exxon Corporation, and if you remember, this is the month 25 years ago this month. Mm-hmm. The Exxon Valdez smashed up in, uh, in Alaska, just for a thousand miles of coastline. And what's not known there is that the real culprit there is British Petroleum. And British Petroleum, because British Petroleum, you have tankers running around all the time, but they don't you know, destroy thousands of miles of beach. You just put rubber around them, and, and then you suck the stuff out. So you mm-hmm. it's kind of a rubber suck thing. Put rubber around and suck it out. Anyway, the rubber and suckers were supposed to be right at Bly Island. British Petroleum had promised it in writing, under oath, again and again and again. But they figured, who's going to look? So they didn't have any of that equipment out there. The ship hit right at Bly Island. I mean, it literally hit where the emergency equipment and ships and crews were supposed to be on standby. It literally hit right there at the emergency um, oil spill response center. That's where it cracked up. But it was all fake. There was nothing there. So the oil just went all over. Now, the thing is that the, this vice president of, um, of Exxon, I won't give his name because it's, it's not important, and I don't need to embarrass him, but he, was, he said, look, we don't, before the Exxon Valdez cracked up, I have his internal memos. I was the investigator on the case. Before the Exxon Valdez crack up, he had actually sent to BP and other and their partners Exxon, Chevron, uh, Exxon, and, and some others, um, but sent to BP executives to a meeting in Arizona. Look, we don't have if there's a, a, a ship on the ground at the sound. You know, we said we'd have this equipment that ain't there. We're screwed if, if something if something goes wrong. This is nine months before the uh, the crack up. Mm-hmm. They turned them down. They said we're not going to send spend you know tens of millions of dollars crap out in the kind of arctic waters there you know among the the polar bears and a bunch of natives who cares Mm. he was so upset because he had been part of that whole crowd that had said no we're not going to spend money on this but he was then assigned to live in valdez and be in charge and when he got to valdez alaska this is before the the exxon uh, hit he was so upset because he got to meet the people whose lives would be destroyed which he knew there was going to be a disaster 
He was so upset that he actually had a nervous breakdown. He had to be led off the docks and hospitalized. Because hmm. it's one thing when it's numbers on a paper. No, we're not going to put, what, $10 million worth of rubber barriers on the middle of some you know Indian island in the middle of nowhere? Forget it, right? But when you go up and you meet the people that are gonna, who you know are about to be destroyed, it, you know, suddenly things change. Hmm. And, you know, um, I, I, in fact, I suggest in Billionaires and Ballot Bandits in my book that maybe if Singer the Vulture, if his, instead of his son marrying a, a, a British uh, banker guy, would instead have uh, fallen in love with uh, some Congolese boy <laughs> with cholera, it would have been, you know, the situation would be very yeah, different. It would have been different, huh? Huh? And uh, in the stories you report, there is this um, recurring theme of um, greed and money and power. So from your experience, how do these uh, elite people interact with, uh, with money, with power? Uh, well, money and power is absolutely everything because it's also sex. It's also – I mean, I have um, – Steve Cohen is an interesting one. One of the, the, the uh, vultures I talk about, one of the, the – in fact, he was just um, – the Securities Exchange Commission finally came down on this guy and said he couldn't handle other people's money. So he's and they fined him a billion and a half dollars for insider trading. That left him with only listen to this. He only has nine billion dollars left, right? Poor guy. Uh, this guy um, Steve Cohn. And you know, I was saying why is why this guy continued to break the law, even though he had billions. What did he need if he had? Seven billion. Yeah. Why do you need eight? If he had eight, why do you need nine? I mean, go do something with El- you know, become a painter, uh, form a <laughs> monastery, whatever. Get a proper want, job, right? yeah. Yeah. Why? Why get up at five in the morning and work all day, like manipulating this stuff and trying to hide stuff from from the, the, the you know from the federal uh, regulators? I mean, in England, you just let them do it. It's mm-hmm. not even against the law. You know, half the stuff they do in, that they get busted for in the U.S. But it's. Um, and I spoke to his ex-wife. Ex-wives are really good because they, they're, they want revenge and money mm-hmm. and more money, right? But so I spoke to his ex-wife, Cohn's ex-wife. He said that when every week he would go home to his mommy, and they'd have dinner at his mommy's house every week, and his mommy would say to him, all I know is money makes the monkey jump. Money makes the monkey jump. What the hell? And and so he, and then he would get in the car on his way home, and he burst into tears because, see, no matter how many billions he had, he couldn't make mommy's monkey jump. It was never enough. So, so these guys, when you look at these guys, in some ways, you know, they, they're big shots, and they support Amnesty International and gay rights, and they do all this stuff, and they think that they're great, you know, that they're great uh, forward thinkers, creative destruction, all this stuff, and they're so brilliant. In fact, they just want to make their mommy's monkey jump, and they can't. So they, they, they're, filling, they're taking billions of dollars and they're sticking it into holes in their soul and it just doesn't fill it up. Mm. These people are really seriously, seriously damaged. The ones, I know billionaires, and most are, most, not all, but most are pretty seriously damaged people. So what are they and they're doing? they're in charge. What are they? Yeah, what are they doing? Being in charge? How the hell do we get into this position where those yeah. kind of people rise to the top? You know. Well, because it's a psychopathic personality. Think about this. Okay, I went to the University of Chicago. I, like I said, I went to school with a lot of these guys, and 
Okay, there's a lot of things. If you're bright, someone bright knows math and, and understands finance and understands things, there's a lot of things you can do. I mean, I'm not saying I'm a man for all season, but I went to go work for labor unions and community groups, okay? Um, yeah. And I thought, you know, I mean, I, I was offered a job at Goldman Sachs, and I turned it down because it was – I was a poor kid. I grew, up in a, I grew up very, very poor in Los Angeles. And I knew that if I took a job for like a quarter million a year at the age of 23 – I'd be stuck there. Even if I said, oh, I'll do this for a couple of years to build up some money and, you know, no, no, no. Because I said, no one ever escapes from a prison made of gold. So mm-hmm. I didn't – but these guys say, oh, what do I want to do with myself? Do I want to come up with a drug that will save people from, from you know, from AIDS? Do I want to, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, do I want to write a great novel? Do I want to, you know, what do I want to do, right? Do I want to become an explorer in the Arctic? Do I – whatever, no, I want to see if I can take the crap I've learned here and come up with a derivatives product that no one's heard of. I want to see if I can come up with third-order derivatives on the changes in weather in Chile. And by the way, there really was a third-order derivative <laughs> of, a, of, of changes in the weather of Chile, and Royal Bank of Scotland bought it up. Oh. <laughs> and what they found out <laughs> was really was just dog, Chilean dog poop, okay? But they yeah. believe it, right? So they came up with this stuff. And that's what you're using your brain on, and that's what you're maneuvering yourself to do. And, you know, and, and that's what – And but then you get lauded. Look, Robert Rubin is, is lauded as the great genius treasurer, uh, United States treasurer. Under Clinton. And what did he do under Clinton? And what – he deregulated the banks, okay? He came out of Goldman Sachs. He's CEO, then he became U.S. Treasury Secretary. Then he leaves the Treasury Department, has deregulated the banks, so they create this monster called Citigroup. He's made co-chairman. He's paid $110 million, and he tells them that they're not taking enough risk. So he deregulates the market, takes over the bank that's set up by the deregulation he does, right? If a Republican did that, they, you know, we'd all be screaming, but he's a Democrat. So we know he's, he's good because he supports Hillary Clinton. And um, he um, – actually, he supported Barack Obama. And yeah. uh, he um, – so he gets his $110 million, bankrupts Citibank. They require $4 trillion in U.S. guarantees to pull them out of the fire and $50 billion in direct subsidies. And he still gives speeches uh, for which he charges two hundred grand apiece about how brilliant he is. And people hmm. still speak about him as brilliant, as opposed to basically an arch criminal who's more dangerous than Al Capone could have ever been, right? And but, yeah. they, but yeah. you know, we laud these people. So when Gold, you know, when uh, when Goldfine says uh, Blankfine says, um, for, who's head of Goldman Sachs says, we are doing God's work. Um, believe me, there's a lot of clerics who will applaud him because they'll buy a wing for their. Uh, <laughs> For their human rights division, yeah, chapel, so, whatever, you know, right. Uh, getting back to the to the Blair years and stuff, um, mm-hmm. as a result of you exposing what was going on, which is which was essentially Blair selling off national <clears throat> kind of energy companies to U.S. Uh, right. to U.S. companies, uh, you know, with kickbacks type of thing. But there was you Murdoch, were, uh, yeah, a lot of things, you, yeah. You were uh, you were lampooned in the British press by Piers Morgan, 
who was then oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Peers, chief of the mirror. Peers, uh, yeah. <laughs> he did that for the Blair government to protect them. Yeah. Yes. Well, you know that's. Um, so I, after I did the, uh, after I broke the news, including, for example, that that um, that you know there was an attempt, you know, Labour Party had promised to come in and break up the Murdoch media empire. So um, through uh, lobbies called uh, through got lobbies called uh, John Mendelson, not Mandelson, but Mendelson, who worked mm-hmm. with Mandelson. Okay. Um, you know, they worked a deal where, in fact, uh, Murdoch would uh, give them favorable news and in return for pulling off, uh, you know, mm-hmm. uh, backing off, breaking up the Murdoch empire. Uh, so Piers Morgan and, and his crowd did, at uh, the Mirror were quite jealous, like, where's ours? So they had to, they had to show that they were willing to uh, kiss Blair's crown. And again, it's more about corporate power than public power. But so when I exposed these things, and I had video, uh, audio tapes, and everything, um, uh, Blair called me a liar. Mm-hmm. You know, kept calling about the American. You know, this Greg Palace, this American who's a liar. Now he did that on the floor of the House of Commons, so I couldn't sue him. Not that I, I don't believe in suing anyway, but he did it under, um, you know, legislative immunity. Blair, so he called yeah. me a liar. So then. Then they got some other crap on me. Uh, one of the power companies keeps – well, a couple, several power companies keep files on me. One on, had a file, big file on my penis, which is more interesting than reality, but I enjoyed reading it. Um, <laughs> and so I ended up with um, – uh, so they had a big full you – know, the entire front page of the mirror was with a picture of me, of Greg Palace. It said, the liar, in four-inch print based on what Blair said and what this power company files. And um, so the liar, but that didn't seem to stick. I mean, Blair was—he uh, was still in hot water. So they decided mm-hmm. that wasn't enough. They had to go out and destroy me. So I had uh, one of his proteges, um, who in Vulture's Picnic I call Miss Jamaica, because I don't like to give any—I don't like to give even bad publicity is worth something these days. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, a very. Um, uh, a very, uh, uh, we'll admit, the, uh, a very good-looking uh, young woman who was a, a Blair protege, and she was rising in the party and running for high party power position. And uh, she had always, uh, because she knew me when I was actually Blair's advisor, mm. so I had helped her in her polit- in her connection to Blair and to Mandelson. I actually introduced her to Blair and Mandelson, and um, <laughs> so to, so in gratitude, <laughs> she. Uh, <laughs> Wanted to, you know, uh, get a little bit closer to me, and yeah. you know, uh, <laughs> invite so you up to her room. Right. So she invited me up to her room at the hotel and at the Labor Party convention in Blackpool. And I figured, well, I'll get two things. I'll get, uh, you know, some, you know, uh, some I, I get, uh, I get information. Well, yeah. you know, I just thought, you know, it's um, I, I could get. You know, if I, I went undercover, basically, in, in both senses of the term. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what <laughs> I didn't know is that truth, yes. she, had, she had all these labor party people. She was running for a top labor position. And, um, and so she had told the labor party people you know, she was going to be seeing me. And they flipped out. They said, no, you aren't. So, so what happened was uh, they set it up. Uh, they were waiting for me. <laughs> and the door swings open in the hotel room. And there's the clerk and her husband. And I'm thinking, bitch has a husband. 
<laughs> you know, it's, I said, "Uh oh," and uh, that wouldn't be so bad. You know, I've I've met some, you know, uh, uncomfortable husbands before. I mean, that's part of the job of being a journalist. Uh, but it's uh, but right behind them were the uh, photographers from the mirror. <laughs> oh, <laughs> and, it's not and I'm laughing now, but it's like so. The next day at the Labor Party conference, nothing. The first entire first six pages of of the Mirror were just you know, Greg Pallast, sex maniac with a picture of, of the wrong Ms. Jamaica, and uh, he's been stalking me. Oh my God, blah blah blah. So it's like, um, and I almost I have to say I'm laughing now. I almost lost my job at, at the uh, at the at the Guardian mm. because one of the editors. Uh, was sure I had see if they if they had said that I'd broken into her room uh, to un, you know to to find some stuff which would have been I don't break the law and as I don't mm-hmm. like Jimmy locks and go into someone's room or something like that if I had done that if they had accused me of that they probably would have gotten away with it but instead they decided to set me up with this with this sex you know thing and. Um, Honey trap. So it, that just didn't, you know, it didn't hold that uh, at, in the end. So, um, um, <laughs> and uh, it was unfortunately, uh, I was the investigation, so to speak, wasn't completed, wasn't consummated. So I, I, it wasn't as, as enjoyable as it could have been. But I ended up, uh, you know, with them trying to smear me again on the front page of the paper, mm-hmm. and I had a fight to uh, to overcome that. But they kept that up. And then later, right after that, George Bush's Gold mining company, Barrett Gold Mining. Uh, he was a, on the board. George Bush Senior uh, sued me um, for uh, exposing their, uh, um, you know, the, the deaths at their mines in um, the mines that they had purchased in Africa. And so, you know, that type of, you know, so it, you know, they go after me quite a bit. Lawsuits, threats, and of course, I get, I get a lot of death threats, but I don't take, I haven't had any reason to take them seriously, at least I'm still talking to you, ain't I? <laughs> um, not not that I'm yeah. inviting anyone to do anything, uh, but um, uh, actually thinking of putting out a coffee table book of death threats against Greg Pallast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, like a whole list of them. Yeah, some of them are pretty interesting. So so that story, that, that event uh, with the Mirror and the, 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 the British media and Blair and stuff, that launched you more or less. I mean, it didn't deter you from carrying on. No, so no, no. From no. then on, you kind of uh, you started. Yeah, I, I, I just, it's for for me, it's juice and fuel to be attacked. I mean, I will admit that you know it, it takes the breath out of you for a for a few hours, but then you know, it's like it gets you going. In the case, by the way, um, and it's um, um, Simon Hoggart who just passed away. Um, wrote uh, was listening in, and he wrote this in the Guardian. He was actually right next to Piers Morgan and um, Alistair Campbell, who, if you don't know uh, or don't remember, mm-hmm. if you're American listening, and uh, Alistair Campbell was the PR mouthpiece, the press spokesman for Tony Blair. Mm-hmm. And after after they ran the pictures of me and the chick. Uh, in, in the mirror, on the front page of the mirror, and Greg Powell's Sex Maniac, um, they, um, um, Campbell went to Piers Morgan and said, you know, thank you for taking care of that for us. He literally yeah. said that. And, and Hogger had the guts to, to print that. 
And, you know, so it was, so it was a, basically on a, on a coordination between the Labor Party and Piers Morgan to smear me with a bunch of, uh, you know, lies. And they did it again and again. And now I could handle it, but your average reporter could not sustain that type of punishment. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've always made sure that I actually am not on someone's payroll, so they don't. I'm always like have a, a contractual agreements where I'm independent, mm-hmm. quasi independent, so mm-hmm. that my paycheck and my livelihood isn't dependent on being. You know, if I get smeared, I can say, well, if you don't want to stand up with me, I'll see. I'll see you later. I will say, mm-hmm. Alan Rusbridger has always stood by my side, so that's been good. When when others have wavered, he's been there. Yeah, that was very, very good. Well, Piers Morgan is a quintessential English scumbag, as far as I'm concerned, and I can't believe that he, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, the type of guy he well, is, he's and also, he ends up in the yeah. U.S. Well, here's the thing: is that he can't come back to the U.K. because he would probably be under indictment. He's done. He did two things. One, Piers Morgan. I mean, it's funny. I, I do all the investigative reporting, but I don't do illegal things like break into people's phone uh, answering machines mm-hmm. or, or literally illegally wiretap phones. I do record phone conversations. People are always shocked. But I do it in a legal manner. I never actually break into a line. You have to be talking to me. Okay, mm-hmm. so... Um, yeah. The, uh, but I've never, like, tapped a phone. And that's exactly what Morgan did. He hacked, he hacked phones. I know exactly what he did. He, he hacked answering machines. I know exactly the process he used, too. I've never made it public. But... Um, Piers Morgan is a criminal. He broke the law. And I don't say that. I say that advisedly. I say that very, very um, carefully and cautiously. And I know that Piers is listening. Everything I say about him or write about him, he carefully tracks. It drives him crazy. So, Piers, um, sorry. I am revealing that uh, uh, you are. Uh, this is one that hasn't been made public. But Piers has a way of uh, had a system for breaking into people's answering machines, including Paul McCartney's. Um, and um, just so he can sell his little crappy little rag. So that's law-breaking. Yeah. He also did something else that in the U.S. you absolutely would go to prison for, which is, but it was turned out to be not considered for some reason not a crime in Britain, which is that he, as editor of The Mirror, he knew what his finance, the stocks, his finance guys were going to be uh, promoting the next day. So if you had... He had uh, a couple of finance guys who would promote small stocks, and as soon as they uh-huh. hit the papers, those stocks would rise 5, 10, 20 percent. Peers knew, because he saw the copy before it went to print, what companies they were going to promote. And mm-hmm. he, would, he would purchase those. Now, in the U.S., any reporter, any publisher who has a story on it, for example, if I find out, that, like on Enron, if I find out something negative on Enron, my editor looking at that can't say, oh, I'm going to short Enron stock because I know it's going to go down tomorrow when I release this report. You mm-hmm. do that in the United States. You go to prison. I don't mean you maybe go to prison. Every single reporter, publisher who has ever, ever used information before, prior to publication, mm-hmm. without exception, has gone to prison. Without exception. You get caught, you go to prison, period. Piers Morgan was caught. And they did nothing to him. They said that was not nice. There was some like little, you know, committee yeah. uh, hearing or something. In the U.S., you go to prison. He was given a visa to the U.S. Now you're not allowed to work in the United States and get a visa to move to the U.S. If you have committed any crime, even if you were in charge, if you committed a crime that would be a crime in the United States, as this is called, this insider trading would be. 
So he's committed a crime, and he lied on his visas because he's supposed to confess to any crimes. You're supposed to say, here's the crimes I've committed. <laughs> you know, that's one way to get it. Yeah. Anyway, so, so Morgan has you know, committed multiple criminal offenses that would be criminal in the U.S., and he compounded the crime by lying about it on his visas. He should not be in the U.S. And um, one of the reasons why they took away his show because no one wanted to watch it. Mm-hmm. But um, the thing is that, um, it, to me, his biggest crime is not the insider trading and the smearing Greg Palast, fabricating reports, I mean, crazy, you know, that type of stuff. Those are crimes that they let him get away with. And you have to ask why they let him get away, because the, the crime he committed was to be the, was the worst in the world for me as a journalist, is to use your, your position as a so-called journalist, mm. not to uncover not to uncover the misdeeds of the powerful and rich, but to participate in those crimes. Mm-hmm. That's what he did. By covering up for Blair in the Lobbygate stories I busted, for going after the reporters who were uncovering, not just Blair, but remember, Blair is just the, 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 the glove puppet, you know, with the, you know, the, the fingers. Who, think of the fingers in that, in that glove, you know, the, the Murdochs and, and the power companies and, and uh, British Petroleum and the rest. Which, by the way, hasn't ended. I was just in Azerbaijan and Kazakhstan in the Caspian Sea, and before I, in these places, that's where Tony Blair was, sucking up and cuddling up to murderous oil potentates, thieving criminal oil potentates. Yeah, I mean that's 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 how he makes his money. That's I guess that's why he became a Catholic. I don't know what is. I, there must be some. I don't know. Is there some special dispensation you get? You know, you get a, yeah, I don't know if they still sell indulgences. I thought they gave up on that, but I, whatever it is, Blair has been going around fronting for the worst dictatorships on the planet. And yeah. uh, it's okay. And he was followed in Kazakhstan by Bill Clinton, but we like Bill Clinton, right? Uh, don't know. Uh, uh, but in in your movie um, Vultures and Vote uh, in your film Vultures and Vote Rustlers, uh, just talking about Azerbaijan, you uh, yeah, you went out there, you went out there, and you yep. were chasing after a story about the uh, chairman of BP, Lord Brown, giving a bribe of thirty million dollars to the Azeri State Oil Company, which is basically the Azeri government officials, right, to get drilling rights in yep. the Caspian. And this was like yes. a check. Actually, the the check was handed. And, and by the way, the reason I, I, you know, Lord, I did this, I did this, by the way, for Channel 4 Dispatches, the British show. And yeah. um, I got a, when the Deepwater Horizon blew up, blew out, I got a, uh, a message through roots I can't explain from all the way from the Caspian Sea saying this is not the first blowout. So I mm. flew to the Caspian Sea and BP had covered it up that there was a prior blowout before the Deepwater Horizon. So I flew to the Caspian. And, and while investigating, this got arrested, by the way, by the uh, secret police the, in what I call the Islamic Republic of BP. And when I was arrested, <laughs> one of, the, one of the, uh, the, the state secret police chiefs actually said to me very proudly, BP drives this country. He said, you know, as if I should be, you know, understand yeah. that, you know, you know, why we do this. You know, BP drives this country, you know, and he's very proud of that, you know, that they're part yeah. of the v- BP empire. And in um, back under Thatcher, and by the way, I didn't talk much. You didn't see this in the film. Uh, all of it. There was a picture of, of Thatcher. If you looked in the corner of, of Lord Brown signing a deal to get the Caspian Sea oil from this nation of Azerbaijan, Lord Brown had uh, had a 
gave personally handed a $30 million check to the president of Azerbaijan. Now, I know that because um, one of the executives of BP, who's on camera, Les Abraham, is a great guy, who um, has decided to kind of come in out of the cold mm. and tell the story. And he said, look, you know, Brown gave him the, the, this Brown briefcase and said this little briefcase and said, you know, hold on to this. I got to, while I go to the loo literally, and talk to other people, <laughs> you hold on to it. And when I'm ready to talk to the president, you hand it back. And he said, there's, you know, and he, he was very proud. He was the fact that there was 30 million quid in there. And, and uh, the guy thought, well, what is this, a big pile of cash or whatever? And he looked at it and he opened the briefcase. And the only thing in the entire briefcase was just a check for $30 million, right? And so Brown handed this guy the, uh, the, uh, the check and, and got, the, um, got the Caspian. Now, you will see when immediately after when Brown is actually signing the papers with the little dictator there, and, and there's, there's Maggie Thatcher in the corner. What, the part of the story I didn't tell, but it's in Vulture's Picnic, my book, is that they had, Brown had flown in with a $30 million bribe with, in, uh, with Margaret Thatcher, uh, they, the BP had actually given her a plane, which they, which they called the Iron Lady. It said Iron Lady on the tail. Um, <laughs> they did. Uh, wow. and, um, and she had a hot tub in there and uh, a whole bar, full, just this whole bar behind the hot tub filled with uh, single malt scotches. Right, Organic, which were, yeah. was her breakfast, by the way. Oh, my God. <laughs> Maggie Thatcher and so she gets off tub. the plane. So she's got a hot tub and her single malt. She gets off yeah, there, yeah. And, she, you know, and she basically comes with Brown holding the, 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 the bribe money and then you know, tells some, gives some little talk to the president and his retinue, and, and then uh, Brown does, does the deal. Now, just so you know, at that time, it was not illegal for – this was not illegal to bribe – foreign uh foreign uh governments bp brown was actually not breaking a british law nor was thatcher nor was this guy the guy confessing because that's why he could confess is that it was not at that time against the law to bribe and it was only in the last few years that the european union requires nations to have anti-bribery law but britain didn't have an anti-bribery law and if you, if you remember um, when uh, British Aerospace bribed the Saudi government with $200 million, um, mm-hmm. the British government said you can't touch that national security. Now I thought, oh, that's the British government. How can, you know, that's how they operate, you know. But then I had another case where um, – the same case, actually. BP paid uh, – and seven American oil companies and BP paid a bribe to the president of Kazakhstan. And how do I know this? Because – BP's partner, BP had a partner in the Caspian Sea who owned 15%. He was billed for his 15% of the bribe. <laughs> and he showed me the invoice. <laughs> BP sent him an invoice for his share of a bribe. Well, they wanted it back. <laughs> yeah, he wanted, they wanted it. Well, he said, you know, we had to pay a bribe. Here's your 15%, you know, that you, you have to pay it. You know, it's like your share. <laughs> you know, it's, it's like they were dividing it up. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and so uh, he, he gave me, I have the invoice. Um, and um, they, by accident, the, when the bribe was paid through a guy named uh, Giffen, he was um, he was this he'd done it through Swiss bank transfers through through Swiss bank accounts. Swiss government has been under pressure by the U.S. government about funny money, so they notified the United States FBI that someone was transferring you know millions in cash to the president of Kazakhstan. So the FBI, not knowing what was going down. 
arrested this guy with $10 million in a briefcase at JFK Airport when he's about to head back off to the Caspian Sea. They threw him in jail for the night. They arrested him for bribery. He's faced 20 years in prison and big multi-million dollar fines. And he said, well, gentlemen, I work for the National Security Agency in the U.S. State Department. I, yes, this is, this is money from U.S. oil companies, but you know, I can't do this without approval of the National Security Agency, right? And, yeah. and so this one guy who was BP's partner, who used to be – he was a, a CIA um, – um, of a key CIA person. That's how he got uh, gotten oil. Um, the CIA guy said, ah, that guy's just, you know, he's just some, you know, pipe salesman making up a story. The uh, federal judge was allowed under secure, national security laws to see the national security files. I go to the guy's sentencing, okay, because he had actually felt to cover, to keep his cover, he actually confessed to bribery. And um, so I went to his sentencing. So he's going to go to jail and everything else. He's, but he's smiling. He's there. He's a very wealthy guy. He's, he's smiling, and, he's, and he stands up. They say, please rise for your sentence. And the judge says, Mr. Giffen, um, my apologies. The U.S. government owes you an apology, and our great thanks. You are a great patriot. Through, now that I've read the files, I realize through your action, you saved the oil of the Caspian Sea for the United States and its businesses. That's what he said. And he said, but, you know, since you have confessed, right, the guy was going to go to prison and pay millions of fines. He says, because you have confessed, I'm I'm required under the law to to fine you, you know, to to punish you. Mm -hmm. So your punishment will be $25 fine. (laughs) (laughs) So this guy, he walked out the door. And I got to tell you, from my calculation, and and I'm only calculating, I mean, you, you won't say one way or the other. You know, you don't just handle $80 million plus and just turn it over. You, you take your little bit off the top. From what oh, yeah. I could figure, this guy probably pocketed close to $29 million. And $25 fine. And um, and you know what? And, and I was in Kazakhstan. To even mention this case, remember the guy did confess, so he said he did it. Okay, he said he did it. So it's a matter of court record that he did it, which is why I can say these things, right? Um, but they changed the name of the prime minister and president of Kazakhstan at the request of Hillary Clinton. Close your ears if you're a Hillary Clinton lover or a Democrat, right? Mm-hmm. Hillary Clinton requested that the, state, that the Justice Department, in the, in the criminal indictment, remove the name of the president and the prime minister of Kazakhstan and took the money and, and write in KO1, which is Kazakh Official 1, and KO2, Kazakh Official 2. Therefore, their names are not in the original, in the actual criminal indictment. They're just numbered. And therefore, because of that, if you mention the case in Kazakhstan, you go to prison for criminal libel because if you say, well, everyone knows that KO2 is, is uh, President Nazarbayev, yeah. oh, wow. you go to prison. So this guy gets off. Uh, or doing the dirty deal, he gets off with a $25 fine. Anybody who mentions the dirty deal goes to prison. Goes to prison. And by the way, going to prison would be kind of lucky. There yeah. are people whose children have ended up getting hit by buses. You know, we have, there's dozens of journalism who, journalists in uh, the prisons of Azerbaijan and Kazakhstan who have supposedly committed suicide. You know, they found hang, mm. hanged in their cell. One guy supposedly committed suicide, committed suicide, one journalist, by shooting himself in the head twice. Yeah. So, like, and, and like I've I, been there. 
I've been there. One thing that people don't know is I actually confronted the uh, the president designate about this case. I was whisked out, just like I was arrested in Azerbaijan. I was kind of like disinvited. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, you know, I mean, I get away with a lot of stuff because I'm going under for Channel Four as an American journal. They cannot, you know, it's hard for them to go after me. But mm. um, that would create more problems than it would solve. But the problem is that in the U.S. press, you don't get these stories. In the British press, you get some of it. Mm. Uh, but you see what happened to The Guardian when they had Snowden stuff. I mean, they took The Guardian's computers, mm-hmm. you know, MI6, put them in the parking lot, and demanded that um, <laughs> that Alan Rusbridger smash him with a hammer in the parking yeah. lot. And he said, you know... He said, you know, you do realize that we'd be stupid if we kept all of Snowden's material sitting here in computers in our office, right? But I think Alan misunderstood. They knew that. What they were trying to do was make a lesson out mm. of Russ Bridger, you know, by humiliating mm. him and, and destroying the Guardian stuff and causing tremendous legal bills and harassment. It's like, okay, everyone knows the Guardian's going to, like, be bad boys. But we'll always have people like Piers Morgan who will take care of us. The Murdoch Empire will take care of us. They're never going to touch this stuff. Mm-hmm. And, of course, in the U.S., <clears throat> forget it. Almost all the revelations about Snowden, et cetera, even though all this stuff was, was, was given to U.S. papers, the only reason why any of it came out in U.S. papers is because The Guardian and Der Spiegel put it out. So they were embarrassed in putting out a fragment of it. Mm-hmm. A fragment but, you know, like the stuff I did on oil, a lot of it, I got information out of WikiLeaks. You can't see that in the U.S. press at all. I mean, I can only, yeah. I, I can't put it in the U.S. press. The, these people just, they, like, they're immune to any real prosecution. Because I, I was reading a story uh, just a few days ago in the U.K. Telegraph where the headline is, mm-hmm. Former BP Chiefs Tony Hayward and Lord Brown team up to drill for oil off Angola. <laughs> yeah. So, and this is Tony Hayward who was uh, presided over yeah. the deep water. Deep water. Yeah. So these two guys, and, and, rising, right. and Lord Brown and, is a $30 million check man, and the two of them are still going strong, and then Gola have just moved on. And let's not forget that Lord Brown, even though it was small stuff, was uh, uh, criminally liable for a felony count of uh, lying in court because he used BP mm. money to pay for his boyfriend. And um, mm. But, you know, I mean, the thing is, is that, yeah, there is no shame. These guys actually believe that to the extent they were ever caught in anything, oh, it was minor. You know, it's like the one thing that, that, that Brown got caught for was having a toy boy on the company payroll um, and lying about it. But, you know, the big crimes, like I say, before the Deepwater Horizon blew up, it, it blew out. It blew out, and this is in my film Vultures and Vote Rustlers, which you can get, and I'm going to plug it again at gregpalace.com. Yeah. Go there, see the trailer, Vultures and Vote Rustlers. It's from my not-for-profit foundation. I don't make money off this stuff. It supports mm-hmm. uh, investigations. And you will see that 17 months before the Deepwater Horizon, they had the same blowout in the Caspian Sea, and they completely covered it up. And it was the same cause, which is this, they use a, a BP's is quick dry cement, which means that they put nitrogen in it, and that can fail under high pressures of deep water drilling. It did in the Caspian. They completely covered it up, completely covered it up, and they got away with it. People like Haywood and, and, and Brown before him, I mean, you know, if there were a, a better world, 
They wouldn't be drilling off Angola. They'd be breaking rocks on a chain gang. This yeah. stuff costs people's lives. Yeah, people die. People. And we yeah. end up, and then we go to war. You know, so it's like, this is, you know, but again, they actually think, like in the case of Brown, he really thinks he's been the victim. Haywood thinks that he's the victim. He knew that there was a prior blowout, and yet he kept allowing the use of a cheap process, which led to the Deepwater Horizon blowout. And they're crying about it. In the case of the Exxon Valdez, BP was tremendously responsible in Alaska. They didn't pay a penny. They walked away from it. Their name wasn't on the ship, so even their name uh, was was let out of the, the escape to the deal. So, yeah, it, like I say, they there is no shame. And then they give a plane to Maggie and fill it with scotch. And, and Greg, uh, however... In Valdez, Exxon was condemned, they paid damages, yes. and the cost was cleaned. In uh, the Gulf, uh, BP was uh, condemned, paid damages, and the cost was cleaned. Well, that's the official story, but uh, is it true? Yeah, that's the official story. I was just up in Alaska, and you'll see in vultures, and I don't know if you say, but you go to gregpalace.com, you'll see pictures of me putting my hand in the oil. From the Exxon Valdez, it's still there 25 years later, 25 years later. And in Vultures and Vote Rustlers, you will see, you will see oil all over the beaches of the Gulf Coast uh, off of Mississippi and Alabama. Not that everyone, anyone ever goes swimming off the coast of Mississippi or Alabama. It's already pretty well destroyed. Just poor black people go picnicking there. But it's covered with high poisonous, dread, dreadful hydrocarbon. It's, you can see the films of this that I have. Because who goes down there and checks? BP yeah. issues, press releases, they, they painted all their petrol stations green. Um, so obviously they're wonderful people. Yeah. And, you know, everything's cleaned up. Mother Nature in this theory of Exxon and British Petroleum in the, in the Gulf and in Alaska, Mother Nature flushed everything clean. As if Mother Nature is some type of toilet, magic toilet that you just flush it and everything's gone. That's just not what happens, and that's not what happened. And that oil is still there in the Gulf. It's still there in Alaska, and shell oil is still all over the uh, deltas in uh, Nigeria, in Nigeria 40 years later after they're drilling, 40 years what later. Can, what kind of effect are these kind of spills and stuff having on the people, per, for example, in Africa and different African countries? Cancers, lesions, birth defects, um, Respiratory problems, um, obviously um, economic problems because you have wildlife, you know, massive wildlife kill off, which I saw in the, in the Prince William Sound in, in Alaska. Um, you know, it stays, it, you know, when you talk about uh, poisons that stay in, in the ground and in your water for, for decades, it's devastating. And, and you know, your, your, your kids get ill, they die. And I was, in, I was in the worst I've seen, actually, with Chevron in Ecuador, where, um, you know um, the the chief Emory Hildo Criollo in the in the Amazon. I, I actually took for news night. I took a dugout log up the Amazon to to actually look at what happened. You know, Chevron keeps saying, you know, we're, we're victims of a con. There's no damage in the Exxon. So I went there, and it was awful. I mean, the, the you know just these pools. I could see the sheens, and of course, um, you know, the, some of these people didn't know that this uh, chief's son. Um, Two years old, he didn't know. He didn't know that when you see a, a shiny water, you can't swim in it. So he jumped in the water, came up vomiting blood, and died. And this is oil that Jeez. was dumped 20 years earlier. Halfway you know, up the Amazon. Uh, yeah. 
Crazy. But yeah, who cares? It's in the Amazon. Yeah, Mother Nature will take care of it. Well, Gray, I, Nature, I watched yeah. your, I watched your film um, just recently, Vultures and Vote Rustlers, and, and while it's a great film, I have to say that it it, it left me feeling sick. But that's actually an endorsement, because anything Good. I've ever well, read, anything anything I've ever read or watched that really drove home the truth about about the the people who basically run the planet uh, has always left me feeling that way. So. I'm sure you know that feeling much better than than I do, given that you're the one digging up the dirt. But I was just wondering if if there's one thing amongst all the corrupt practices that you've investigated and exposed, is there one that really sticks in your craw uh, for any particular reason? One that seems particularly egregious? Yeah, um, I would say George Bush Seniors. George Bush Senior was uh, affiliated with. Uh, he was on the board of a gold mining company, Barrick. Before he got off and his son ran, and the problem with that is that he was replaced with a, a Democrat, powerful de- black Democratic officials, Vernon Jordan, uh, Andy Young, and um, the the head of Barrick Gold Mining, a Canadian company, Peter Monk, was so good he bought bought up German politicians and English politicians. He, he got he had he paid millions of dollars to politicians to cover up whatever he did, and no paper. Except the Guardian had the guts to report about the, the the people who died at the mines they were buying. There was one; it was horrible cases where there was a before they bought a mine. This they didn't own it, but they couldn't have bought it unless a mining area in Tanzania were cleared of jewelry miners, small uh, claim holders. So just the predecessor company ran bulldozers across the property to clear these people out. But a lot of guys are still in the mine. Fifty people were buried alive from the evidence we have, and. Um, the um, you know and the, by the way that's why I attack amnesty because see they they scare everyone they they threaten to sue they sue me they all they sue the guardian but they, yeah I wouldn't back off uh, I've published this now and um, and I won't back off I keep saying okay here it is and um, but they've been able to get complete silence New York Times would not run you know ran a story about a company but wouldn't name it and wouldn't name George Bush. So they they buy a level of protection. They got Amnesty International to back off, um, even though Amnesty gave me the first tip. That's why I'm peeved at them because. Um, but I have to say, there's been some very good groups, also Friends of the Earth, Corner House in in Britain, um, Amnesty of Canada was very good when it backed down. But um, but it's amazing, um, you know, they buy up enough politicians that that's the problem. It it's when. It's the corporations that get the politicians on both sides. That's why Blair is more dangerous than Thatcher. Thatcher, mm. you know where she's at, and you can mm. be for her or against her. Vote for her or against her. Blair says one thing and then does the other, and that's the most dangerous. That's yeah. the, when you have Orrin Obama who says one thing and does the other. Yeah. Clinton. So it's, it's the so-called progressive politicians that are on the take. That are the most dangerous of all. Is there a solution, Greg? I mean, yeah. is there a solution to the state of the world today, and and all the stuff that you kind of expose and show uh, about what's going on and the corruption in high places? Where do you see it going, sure. and is there a solution? There is a solution, which is that you know, look, we've had all kinds of movements that have been very, very effective from 
the labor movement, the anti-slavery movement, the environmental movement, the women's movement, even now the gay rights movement, which has been so successful, they kind of, you know, were able to move the billionaires to their side. In other words, there, there's a, you know, as Arthur Kessler said, there's kind of a pendulum of history. And, yeah, so they've got the money, we've got the people. To me, one of the reasons why I switched to journalism kind of late in life is that I, I, I'm committed to the idea that you, you can't know, you can't act unless you know who's screwing you and how. You know, you can't stop a thief unless you know which pocket they're picking and what they've taken from you. The, that's one of the problems. You don't even know the crime's been committed. Someone breaks into your house and, and steals, you know, uh, uh, steals your, your stereo and your jewelry or whatever. You know you've been robbed. But these guys steal from you. They steal your health because they're secretly poisoning you. They're mm-hmm. stealing the truth. They're stealing your vote. And you don't know it. That is deeply evil. So I believe that the first thing we do is the work you're doing, which is great. You expose, you pull down their pants and say, take a look at that. <laughs> you know? And, uh, you know, you turn on the lights and the cockroaches run to the walls. And from that, people get angry, and that's how movements start. And um, movements can be successful, you know. Uh, but then they'll, be, you know, then look, they get bought out. I mean, you know, British Petroleum was, you know, was the great green company, and they practically owned half the environmental movement in America. And um, then that's how they got away with the Deepwater Horizon, you know. And yeah. so it's like, um, yeah. So we we'll keep. We'll keep winning and we'll keep losing, and that's kind of the fate of the planet for the next, you know, uh, until um, until the toxic garbage finally eliminates, you know, the, the last of our uh, functional DNA. <laughs> this, this, <laughs> this back and forth will continue. All right. Well, Greg, it's been great talking to you, and I just want to—I know you promoted your stuff, and your books, and your and your films—but I just want to give a shout out again to everybody. Um, just go to gregpalace.com because you've got so many books and so many videos and films and stuff, and they're all excellent. And everybody should watch them and read the books, but and they're very well written. It's not a kind of staid academic style. It's very humorous, very entertaining, but it gets yeah. the message across. So, uh, yeah. Fair play to you, Greg. I mean, you're doing brilliant work, and I hope uh, long, long may it continue. You know, just watch out okay, for those, like, you know, death threats or uh, real death threats. You know. Yeah, we're, unfortunately, we're I'm not getting out. enough. They, they, they're not throwing the uh, the blondes at me as much anymore. You know, the honey <laughs> yeah. traps are. I, you figured that I don't out. fall for. You know, but I can no. use a couple. So I'm I'm offering if anyone <laughs> out there wants to trap me, at um, least give it a try. <laughs> yeah. At least for a bit of entertainment, you know. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. Get you guys yeah. Later. All right, thanks. Thanks a lot. You've been a great sport. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Awesome. So that was Greg Palace. Yeah. Good. I mean, investigator and journalist. He's one of a really rare. He's a rare, rare breed. I mean, there's maybe um, what do you call the other guy, the Australian guy? Um, Oh yes. Um, He also writes for British papers. Yeah. John Pilger. John Pilger. Yeah. Uh, But he's bit more kind of, uh, he's not as uh, kind of humorous and doesn't have the kind of uh, yeah. out there kind of, uh, like Greg, Greg has, a, has an attitude there which is really, I think, essential for the kind of work he does. Cause I, mean, I don't know how he keeps going when he, when, for, it's been what, you know, almost 20 years now that he's been sticking his nose into all of this stuff and seeing it up close and personal. He's not just like writing about it from a, from a distance, he's down there in every single country 
where all of this this yeah. horrible kind of destruction and death is being uh, wreaked on 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 people, yeah. especially in kind of third world and quote countries. And he's seeing it all, and he he still has the energy and, and the, the the drive to kind of talk about it and write about it in a way that that uh, people really can can that's easy to read and uh, that people can, can really understand to, yeah. and relate to. Yeah, he understands. If you watch his videos, even just if videos on YouTube where he's being interviewed. You know he's he understands yeah what people c- can take in at one at any one time. Even yeah. when he's getting right down to some very complex issues, yeah. he'll break it down for you simply and then say, "Look, I've got the documents or a fuller explanation on my website." Um, his videos are made in a very funny way as well. You know, he's one minute he's in Azerbaijan and you're like he's he's being arrested mm. and the next he's in Sarajevo connecting some story with uh, a cholera outbreak in, in the Congo and you're like well how the hell are those things connected mm. and he shows you it's it's pretty simple I, I can't think He'll of delve in anywhere and, yeah. and show you how simply it's I, connected I can't think of anybody else in the, in the western world or in the western media albeit kind of slightly alternative well he's written for the BBC or he works for the BBC and Newsnight and, and the Guardian and stuff but still it's kind of sidelined you know but I can't think of anybody else really who who is doing the kind of work he's doing and getting the kind of exposure he's getting, even though, as he says himself, it doesn't get much exposure, particularly in the US. Yeah. I mean he couldn't get a job with any newspaper in the US like he got a job with the Guardian and the Observer who are willing at least to kind of fund him and, 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 and publish the reports and the videos. But right yeah. now, like he said, he's it's his own non profit organization. Uh, that is essentially distributing mm-hmm. and, and marketing this material because in order to fund further investigations. Yes, basically he's not getting money from from anybody, and that's that's the way the world is. He's, when he's smart, he said it in the course of answering our questions. The important thing is to stay independent. Yeah, well, he has to because, yeah. in, like, in the same way that we we stay independent, because uh, once you're beholden to anybody, you take money from any uh, yeah. organization. Even if you say, "Oh no, I will, I will always go for the truth," it starts to work on you. Yeah, well, there's also, like you he say. said, there's, there's litigation problems as well because if you're associated directly with some kind of a third-party organization, and uh, there's strictures on what you can do because they have to protect themselves from any kind of legal. You know, and that's basically gagging the truth. Uh, you know, the threat of legal action uh, is very often these days um, directed at people telling the truth. That's you get punished these days for telling the truth. So you can't be associated with anybody who has something to lose because they're interested in maintaining yeah. their profits and maintaining their, you know, their their reputation, etc. So you just have to have your own reputation, your own independence, and do what you can. But that again comes with big a big downside, which is that you. Uh, have very limited reach because of these big organizations that control the media and control the extent to which people get the get the truth. I have a question though. Greg Palace is still relayed to some extent by some major medias. Yeah, and um, Not again. Uh, under under contract. Yeah, yeah. I, I, and usually the way the elites uh, deal with such individuals is by ignoring them. So how do you explain that? Uh, some major medias are still uh, relaying his, uh, well, his work. Like we said, it's kind of the Guardian, uh, really just the Guardian. I mean, I don't think he does much for, he does a little bit for the BBC now again, but the BBC would kind of select I specifically. It's either dropped <coughs> off or, yes, they're very selective. But like he really only gets two, or two to five minutes slots mm, right. as, a, as, a, as an ad. He doesn't get, a, for example, the Newsnight program, which is a flagship ah. mainstream B- BBC program, their flagship reporting program. 
He's given like a five minute. Yeah, like a, to him. He, here's our wacky kind of conspiracy you guy. Know, just collect the video of him that he's made. You know that he's given to them, yeah. and it'll just be five minutes, and it's kind of. And but, Channel Four. And Channel Four will do it as well. But Channel Four kind of has a history of being kind of somewhat independent, kind of like oh, yeah. the Guardian newspaper, and um, and they'll they'll publish. Uh, they'll they do their own stuff. You know, dispatches. There's not. A, there's a, there's a show called Dispatches. Um, in the UK, which is investigative reports, and you know, so there's scope there for in investigation into corruption, but you never really uh, get anything <clears throat> on the on the individuals uh, yeah. involved. And there's never any dirt. You know, if it ever got that far, where some big heads would would roll, I don't think that they'd, they'd, they'd allow it. I mean, the word yeah. would come down and yeah. say this this can't go. So it's only about general corruption and blaming companies, blaming corporations. Oh, isn't it yeah. terrible? But people need to remember that there's always people behind us who are making these decisions, you know. And Greg writes about that in his books, in his books that, uh, you know, he's not beholden to anybody. In his articles and his books, when he publishes them on his own website, yeah. that's where you get the information on the actual people involved, you know. He names names. He's done. He does. He's, he investigates so many different things. One thing he went uh, deep into was the Koch brothers yeah. in mm. the U.S. Um now, you could say, well, okay, the Koch brothers, yes, they would be involved in funding right-wing parties and right-wing politicians. So, okay, he's allowed to give the scoop on one half of the two-party state system. Mm. But, no, uh, back in the 90s, or maybe more recently, but uh, he's done exposés on the money, the money. The Koch brothers were also financed Bill Clinton. Mm. I didn't know that. Bill Clinton is purely a product of the right wing. They, they created a kind of adjunct to the Democratic Party called the DLC Labour Convention. I can't remember what DLC stands for, but they created a sort of pseudo quasi Democrat Party, put Clinton in there, and got him elected. That was a completely a right wing monetary yeah, financial it's a, operation. It's a modus operandi of the puppet master who fund both sides. So exactly, in yeah. the end, whoever wins, uh, it would be. Uh, well, well, a perfect example of that was, uh, I mean, more, more recently we had, uh, we talked about in previous shows about the Ukrainian uh, coup where Victoria Newland was talking, that recorded telephone conversation between her and the ambassador uh, in Ukraine where they were talking about getting Biden in, the vice president of the US mm. for an attaboy. And that for an attaboy means for just kind of push him forward and just shake, shake hands and a photo take pictures, op. a photo op, basically. And so they're behind the scenes, doing it, although they're government officials. But in, in the story that Greg told about in uh, Azerbaijan, where the um, BP was given a $30 million check to the uh, Azeri government uh, to get rights in the Caspian, Maggie Thatcher was there for an attaboy. Yeah. You know, she she was just yeah. there tagging along. Cause she was flown in with the hot tub yeah. and the private jet. Exactly. Yeah. And that's the role of presidents and prime ministers and stuff is simply to, to act as a public face for the real power brokers behind the scene who are corporations and bankers. And they're never, nobody knows them, so they're no good to be the, the face of it. So you need this public face that everybody talks about and is plastered around and, on, on, you know, speaks on TV and you pick the right person who is, has the right image and, and stuff. And they're the people who you know, rubber stamp it type thing, you know, for the people. And they maintain the illusion of democracy. Exactly. They are elected, or so we believe. Absolutely. So I enjoyed uh, two things particularly during this uh, discussion with Greg Palast. I like that by himself, he brought up the topic of psychopathy 
and Coral ETD, we, yeah, we well, it. Well, we primed him a little bit with yeah. the of the first ones who mentioned this <laughs> yeah. world. So he was good, and I liked uh, as well in his conclusion, saying that basically knowledge, spreading yeah. truth, putting light on the cockroach is a, is a way to follow. So altogether, it was uh, quite a interesting analysis of uh, what's going on in the world. Yeah, there's a couple of quotes I'll just give you from, from two of his books. One of them is from a, a book from a few years ago called Armed Madhouse. Uh, very appropriate title. Um, he said, uh, talking about where he came from uh, and why he is doing what he did today or what he does today, he said, I'm here because my father worked in a furniture store in the barrio in Los Angeles, selling pure crap on layaway to Mexicans. Then later on, he sold fancier crap to fancier people in, in Beverly Hills, and he hated furniture. And I hated the undeserving pricks and their trophy wives who bought it. I could smell their cash and smell of and the smell of corpses they stole it from. They were all vultures, and the rest of us were just food. And the second one is from his um, his more recent book, uh, Vultures Picnic. He says, there's only one story, the story of them versus us. They get bigger, get, they get homes bigger than Disneyland. We get foreclosure notices. They get private jets to private islands. We get tarballs and lost futures, and pay their gambling debts with our pensions. They get the trophy wife on a tax break. We get subprimed. They get two candidates on the ballot, and we are told to choose. They get the gold mine. We get the shaft. <laughs> that's good. So that's He's a, a that's fantastic cool. writer. That's an example of, of the yeah. kind of way he writes, and, uh, and all of his, book is, uh, yeah. his books are like that and very entertaining. And, he's, uh, but he's also very detail-oriented. I mean, yeah. he, he wouldn't say he's... I saw him uh, being interviewed... I think it was by Alex Jones or something, and Alex was priming him to, what's your, what's your take on, what's your scoop on this issue? And he said, no, um, I'm not going to answer because I'm still investigating. And he's, he would not, he would not, you know, say what he's saying unless he's backed by facts. Absolutely, but that's, that's the way it has to one, be. I mean. Yeah. One thing he's, um, we didn't touch on it, unfortunately, a bit of time, but, uh, there was a bombshell. I mean, it's not a bombshell for people who are generally aware this is how things work, but it should have been big news. This should have been a breaking news globally that um, the way in which in the 90s things were set up that precipitated the financial crash in 2008. Uh, he mentioned Rubens, who was a uh, no- notorious U.S. Treasury Secretary under Clinton, who then profited massively when he went and formed Citigroup, uh, is the so-called endgame memo. Now, this is where Greg's schmoozing and contacts, you know, paid off. Paid off big time. He got a memo from Larry Summers, not not sent to him by Summers, but it was from Summers to the big the CEOs of big five banks in the U.S., in which they came up with this. Genius idea that they well the backstory is they realized by the mid nineties that J.P. Morgan alone was sitting on eighty eight trillion dollars of useless derivatives, basically debt on their balance sheets for which there was no real way to get, get nothing get attached back. to it. It didn't. It was like the the what was the example he gave of, of something we sold in Chile? Yeah, of. of uh, betting on the change in yeah, the, the change in the weather. You know, they were bets that were so real in quotes financial assets tied to nothing. 
Anyway, they had $88 trillion of this by the mid-90s. And they realized, well, shit, we've got to offload this somehow. Okay, we know how they, it was offloaded to the U.S. people via the subprime mortgages. Let's flog people, loans they won't be able to afford, and then turn up the screws. But internationally, they got the WTO, the World Trade Organization, then with 155 member, member states, mm-hmm. to agree to basically open their financial systems to accept these toxic derivatives mm-hmm. to be traded on their own. Share this, yeah, the, 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 tell them I, around the world. I couldn't basically. believe it. All but, all but one country, only Brazil, refused. Everywhere else was hit with this. And just the way in which it, it's just one brief memo, you know, and this, they come up with this genius idea. Yeah. And five weeks later or something, it's rubber stamped by the WTO, mm-hmm. one of the, you know, one of the largest super international organizations based in Switzerland. Mm-hmm. And the 155 member states, countries on the planet, within five weeks are, are embroiled in this dodgy, dodgy financial scheme. Yeah, they're taking a bunch of debts that they, a bunch of loans essentially, as in debt that they had given to millions of people around the world uh, that were no good, that weren't going to be paid back. Yeah. And then they bundle them all together and split them up into different pieces and, 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 uh, and then say that these are really good um, debts, as in these will be paid back. And they sell them on at a higher price. And everybody says, oh, I'll buy that. Yeah, buy this for someone. Then they sell it on one bank, buys one, and then sells it on to another bank and round and round it goes. And they're basically, it's like, you know, selling a bunch of crap, basically, something that is completely worthless, as if it is worth a lot. And everybody's exchanging money on this bundle of crap. And eventually someone's left holding the bundle of crap. And, or in this case, a lot of banks are left holding a bunch of crap. And, uh, and then the public had to bail them out. The public had to give, give money from public funds, public treasury, to uh, keep the banks going. So it's, I mean, it's, very, it's very simple in that kind of way, you know, that it was simply, they were gambling uh, on yeah. stuff that they knew, someone knew, a lot of them knew were no, was, was no good, was a really bad bet, and uh, they were taking money off each other and somebody then was left holding the baby type thing. And, um, yeah. and that was it. And it was just, it was just pure, a pure scheme to, for as m- many of them as possible to make as much money as possible and they all knew you can bet your ass they all knew in advance that if and when this goes down which it, which it w- will and, and did obviously uh, that governments would have to bail them out that it would be the public so it was ultimately if you think about it it was a, a scheme crafted to pilfer money from public treasury from public funds i.e. your tax dollars held by the government let's say to, by, for the banks to take Trillions of that in the end, yeah. out of the out of the country, out of countries around the world, and the end, direct result was to uh, deny people access to you know to, to in terms of the infrastructure in the country, social welfare payments. That's the result today. Yeah, and, and the, actually, the debt, mortgage debt that would not be paid back, mostly generated in the U.S., was sliced and repackaged and relabeled. It was called CDO. Mm-hmm. And CDO was spread all over the world, mm-hmm. in banks, as you said, but also individuals purchased those financial well, products yeah, through banks, yeah. companies, and states, mm-hmm. and regions, public organizations. Mm-hmm. Thought they were going to make some money off them. It, it was an investment product. It mm-hmm. was presented as an investment product, generating some uh, uh, interest rate profit. But in the end, you have some individuals who paid three times during this crisis. Mm-hmm. Especially in the U.S., you have people who a lost the house, 
because they couldn't pay the mortgage because of the variable uh, interest rate. B, they paid for the bailout. And C, they lost some or all of their savings because their savings had been used to buy CDOs. Mm-hmm. Yes, sir. They were screwed in three different ways, yeah? <clears throat> to make these people billions of dollars and, and billions of dollars they got. Individuals are sitting on billions of dollars now as a direct result of this. And um, But there's, the, the term vulture comes up a lot. We didn't get around this in, in Greg's books. Vulture, I mean, the, the, his... Um, his latest film is Vultures and Vote Rustlers, and their I, I love the titles he gives his books and yeah, movies. Vultures Technic, and uh, the, te- the idea of vultures is basically these kind of like financial institutions that um, they call themselves vultures. I know, I didn't know that. Yeah. Paul Singer, you know Paul what? Singer, Vulture numero uno. <laughs> yeah, well, it's a very appropriate uh, term even for them to choose for themselves, but uh, they probably they think it's a it's a kind of feather in their cap type of thing, but probably the best way to to depict that. Uh, them as vultures or that idea of uh, uh, vulture capitalists or vulture um, vulture funds mm. is uh, I don't people probably know this picture. It was from uh, March 1993. There was a, a photographer um, Kevin Carter who was on trip to Sudan. It was a picture that was used in the in the media in the kind of um, uh, live aid concerts and stuff. In these concerts to raise money for. Uh, African countries in famine and to um, forgive third world debt, etc. Um, <clears throat> this guy Kevin Carter took his picture and it's of a small African boy, maybe only three or four years old, just kind of like oh, bent yeah. over and a vulture, an actual vulture, um, just had landed nearby. <clears throat> I was just staring at him and this little boy was kind of like slumped, slumped over, over starving. on the ground trying to get to a, a, a relief station. And um, actually, the guy, Kevin Carter, who took that a few years later, uh, actually a few months later, committed suicide. He won the Pulitzer Prize for that picture, and then he committed suicide. Uh, and he cited in suicide note that it was basically because of all the stuff that he had seen, all the death and starvation and torture. <clears throat> yeah. um, so, I mean, that image, I think, should be these guys who call themselves uh, vultures and run vulture funds, which are... Uh, this is again from from Greg's work. Is these uh, vulture funds or financial institutions? And I'm sure they're tied to banks in some way, but they basically come in and um, they go to banks and different lending institutions, for example, uh, who have debts on their books from third world countries, from African countries, for example, who have just kind of mothballed them because they don't expect them to get them get them paid back, and and they buy them for nothing almost or for very little off the off the banks or the lending institutions. And then they go to the government of the country in question and demand the full amount. And they sue. Uh, and they sue in courts. And they sued in British courts, sued countries, African countries, to get this money uh, from them that they bought, these, these loan documents that they bought from the banks who weren't actually going to, the banks and lending institutions who had just forgotten about them essentially and weren't acting on them, had to kind of mothball them. And they kind of uh, reignited them or, or woke, woke them up. Well, as Greg found out, in one case... It was literally mothballed. It yeah. was it was buried in an old filing cabinet yeah. or something. It was, I think it was Liberia's yeah. twenty eight yeah. million. It was forgotten. Yeah, and these are, and some guy dug it up and sold it to the sold this, it. this vulture. But it does you for the amount of the debt. For the example of Liberia, it was maybe twenty million debt. Something. I think like twenty eight million. Yeah. But it's sued for two hundred fifty or three hundred million because they claim damage 
interest rate and yeah. all yeah, these kind of, of penalties. Yeah. And the thing is that they're suing very often countries that uh, don't have a government or, or countries that are embroiled in kind of a civil war, unquote, that very often and more than likely has been uh, created or funded uh, by Western arms dealers, for example, and Western governments with interest, and even back to the, to the oil companies. It's this kind of loop of them. You know, these vultures are in there with the, with the banks, the IMF, the oil corporations, and you know, they're, they're all just feeding on, on people, essentially, because it's people who, as a result of their policies, ordinary people in Africa and in other countries around the world, who die, literally, starve to death, or poison to death as a result of what these people are doing. And, um, yeah, it's horrible. Well, Greg has some stomach to go and, you know, actually go to these places. Um, interview, for example, the president of Liberia. Mm. And she's like, it, it, we, hear, we hear from her what we would never hear otherwise. She says plainly to, to Greg, but what what is wrong with these people? Have they no conscience or something? Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. She repeats it. Repeats it. Yeah, Nobel Prize 2011. So there are some good Nobel Prizes sometimes. Yeah, that's also she won. I'm not surprised. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And basically, she says because uh, if we think about those uh, court cases involving those uh, vulture funds with billions and billions with top attorneys and with unlimited resources on one side, on the other side of countries like Congo or Liberia. Of whose government are highly corrupted, A, B, not very structured, and C, they don't have much, uh, much resources. resources. And we know in a court case what really matters is uh, resources. So it's a very unfair ba- legal battle, battle, and usually the one who wins this kind of battle is the one who has the most money, not the one who is right. Yeah, these people. I mean, I thought it was an interesting point he brought up that these people uh, that he's met. These billionaires are essentially very damaged people, and I can believe that to be true in, in, in a sense that <clears throat> at least some of them um, are the reason they get to be in the positions they are in, where they're essentially making decisions that affect millions of people negatively. Um, that they're driven by some, <clears throat> essentially by a kind of maybe childhood trauma or some kind of a uh, an upbringing uh, effect that 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 has. Um, that made them the kind of people they are today, where they're driven by some yeah. unconscious drive. To, but that doesn't explain uh, the, the rest of them or others who who really do know, have to know what they're doing and see the results of what they're doing. Maybe not up close, but they see it. And it just doesn't matter to them. And that is an example of, uh, in that case, in those cases, you're dealing with a complete lack of conscience, i.e. Uh, psychopathy. Mm-hmm. And But of course, that, that kind of culture that that is established by such people filters down uh, as described by Lobachevsky in political panelology, the polarization process where other people who weren't maybe kind of clinical or born psychopaths uh, are infected with this ideal which is just me, 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 money, money, money you yeah. know, um, and, and forget everything else as long as I'm okay screw everybody else, you know Yeah, it's it's a big indictment on the condition of an overall country that uh, in in the case of the Goldman Sachs chief, Blankfein, yeah. uh, his crimes can be known. He can actually be indicted. 
and it can be there can be Greg Pallister or someone else can actually you know publish a report that is hits the mainstream press and everyone is aware of it and still he is lauded as doing when he says I'm doing God's work it's accepted mm-hmm. yeah they think they're creating they're, they're, they're doing God's work as in they're creating a planet and that's that's a really important thing to keep in mind if you want to talk about it at a kind of top level uh, the ideolo- ideology that these people hold to is I think Greg is right in that they um, they look at the world as, as their playground and that they are creators essentially they're doing God's work or probably privately they might think they're some kind of gods themselves mm-hmm. in the sense that on this planet they, they rule supreme and that they can uh, remake the planet in any way they want and, um, and that in- includes getting rid of uh, millions of people in whatever you know if, if it furthers their goals then that's necessary and obviously more people will be born you know there's no problem with population yeah. on the planet I mean well you mentioned wiping the planet clean yeah and some starting some they mentioned about a, a new millennium you know who knows how they can justify it for themselves yeah and and also it described one of the one important point of one important trait of psychopathy psychopath don't see reality objectively. No. They shape reality and what they perceive from reality according to their wish, to their belief. And uh, so this notion of good or bad or mm. what is really happening of consequences or what they do ab- suffering. Abstract or, to them, yeah. Abstract and uh, I guess in some, sec- in some cases at least, it's not on their radar. Perceive it. No, because it's part well, of their reality. Well, if, yeah, exactly. Part of their, their reality, a fact or facts or reality for them is what they believe it to be, what they yeah, see themselves. And if, they, and if you take that kind of an idea that, is, that has been talked about uh, and testified to by, uh, in, in literature and psychopathy, that psychopaths you know, that have been studied by Robert Hare, etc., don't know what a fact is, essentially. <clears throat> yeah. If you take that uh, kind of almost natural, from their point of view, <clears throat> uh, perspective, on the world and on reality outside of them, uh, and combine that with the power to uh, change, uh, you know, countries or mm. affect uh, the lives of millions of people. Well, then you have a really, really bad, uh, really bad mix of <laughs> recipe for a real disaster there. Because as, if the, as far as they're concerned, there is no suffering. You know, they're simply yeah. uh, doing what uh, they feel like doing and what is good for them. And obviously, there's a lot of greed and um, and it's, geez, I mean, yeah, it's a recipe for, and for them, disaster. It's, not, it's a recipe for what is happening on the planet yeah. today, where we are today on the planet, and the amount of suffering and death and torture and destruction on the planet that has been wreaked on the planet, most specifically in the past, you know, 40, 50 years. Uh, that's, that's the core uh, cause. That's the, 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 yeah. the origin of it right there. And for them, it's, it's not even greed, I think. In their mind, it's probably survival of the fittest. It's success. It's a fair retribution of their excellence. Uh, they're not aware of the suffering of the implication of others. And they're not aware of the greed that is driving them. They're not aware of the subjectivity and the, the non-objective assessment of, of reality. Yeah. They're machines. They're machines yeah. in a very... Uh, in, Unaware in a, machines. Yeah. In a very essential, an essential way, you know, and that's the scary part is that you have people controlling this planet who are essentially extremely machine-like. Of course, many other people are machine-like, but at least uh, the ordinary people maintain some level of kind of conscience or empathy and normal human uh, feeling. 
but these people are essentially like robots and they but they act extremely uh, extremely charismatic and uh, you know very normal appearing to, to the rest of us but they are beneath the skin let's say little more than robots in terms of uh, normal human uh, nature essentially yeah they're 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 very highly processed robots i mean mm. they can they seem so intelligent and they do they um, are have this those of them that go through the proper channels mm-hmm. they become freedmanites and neoliberal thinkers in quotes and uh, work their way up they have this enormous grasp of information mm-hmm. but there's something about the way they understand that information yeah. I thought it was in- his insights on Blair were interesting mm. I would have put him actually in the smarter category of, of psychopaths or very well, damaged people but he's saying no he's basically no he yeah, I don't think I don't think Blair is very smart. Uh, uh, if you look at the way that he's handled uh, the whole Iraq war business, you know, I mean, uh, he he hasn't made, he's made very bad moves on that front in terms of his own um, his own PR, if yeah. you know what I mean, in terms of the way because I mean he's he's roundly hated in the UK, for example. I mean, yeah. both uh, left and right or whatever you want to call it don't think very well of Tony Blair and everything he does just makes it worse. You know, anytime he appears in the papers or in the media, people just love to hate him, you know. Uh, so he hasn't been very successful in that perspective and that's a key indicator, I suppose, um, because even with the media uh, there to kind of support him largely, uh, yeah. he hasn't been able to do it, whereas other people like uh, Greg was saying earlier on, they, uh, they are able to kind of massage public opinion and and get away with it. But Blair, I mean, he talked about that guy, John Paulson, you know, who, who made like um, four billion from the from the derivative scam and stuff. He, um, he he's a philanthropist as well. He gave after making money, uh, this four billion from the from the subprime mortgage crisis, if we can call that a scam. Um, he went ahead and um, gave fifteen million dollars to build a children's hospital in Ecuador, for example. You know, um, so, uh, I mean, Tony Blair never does anything like that, you know. Uh, Tony Blair doesn't seem to be aware of that. So in that, in that sense, I think he's maybe not the brightest, you know. Um, despite Alistair Campbell, his, his warm tongue in the background, you know, doing his best. I, I wanted to go back to the machine analogy and psychopathy. Well, there are different kinds of machines. There are mach- sure psychopaths of this mechanical dimension, no conscience, they are machines from this uh, perspective. Also, but a different kind of machine, you have uh, some uh, useful ones like uh, say water distiller, making pure water, and you have destructive, intrinsically destructive machines like uh, rocket launchers, and uh, problem with uh, psychopaths that they are mechanical and also they are intrinsically destructive because the main driver being maximization of power mm-hmm. and money. I mean, ultimately, this is a zero-sum game. All the money, all the resources you get for yourself, and we see those billionaires with uh, dozens and dozens of billions, all those resources are taken for somewhere. Yeah. And that's how you end up with the world, and that's one of the main problems on a very simplistic economical level. You have a world with uh, 0.1%, or 1% of 
owning more than 50% of the resources. And on the other side, you have more than half the world population, billions of people who live with uh, less than $1 a day. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, the, um, in terms of the robot and machine analogy, yeah, machine isn't is neutral. It's a program. It's the software that, that dictates what it yeah. does. And the software, in this case, uh, amongst these uh, psychopathic machines, is, like you said, a, a software that's, that's designed or, or um, you know, aims d- directed at, um, yeah, like you said, dominating and accumulation, accumulation of wealth and power. And, and also they seem to have a destructive program going on there as well where mm-hmm. they, you know, it's a hard one. It's a chicken or egg kind of thing. Do they uh, destroy uh, just for the sake of it and then make money off it? Or do they, is the destruction collateral damage in their goal to um, enrich themselves and... Uh, Either way, it's, uh, it has to stop. Well, and both, both are possible. In any case, the fact that some individuals, psychopathic individuals, enjoy the suffering of, of others is quite uh, extensively documented. You have the Isit Ansalter and others who, uh, who describe very precisely how some psychopathic individuals were getting a lot of pleasure from the suffering of others, like... Uh, Sadist, basically, and uh, and some other kind of uh, mental condition. So, do we do we have a caller on the line? I'm just listening. We have a listener on the line. <laughs> Hi there. Enjoy the show. Um, anyway, uh, I think we're probably gonna wrap it up at this stage. We're a little bit early, but um, I think we've covered covered the topic. Uh, Greg was a great um, a great guest, great speaker. He knows his stuff, and if you should really, people should check out um, his yeah. books and his videos. And from the point of view of uh, anybody that you know that is maybe on the fence type of thing, or maybe you know partially open to looking at the world in a different way than the mainstream way, or just looking at the world at all rather than their iPhones and their uh, <laughs> their computer screens. Um, it, his books are great. Uh, would be a great introduction for people like that who who need a kind of more easygoing kind of uh, uh, colloquial uh, presentation of, of the facts. That's also that, that are also that's also fun or makes it fun to to read it. You know, um, so we recommend his books basically uh, for that, but also for anybody who's interested in any of this because there's a lot of information in there. Um, yeah, so it's greatpalace.com. Yeah, go there. His books are listed. He's still writing articles on a regular basis, yeah. um, but he publishes for free. In fact, he publishes a lot of stuff for free. He's yeah. got free excerpts from his books, <clears throat> free clips from his DVDs. Yeah, he's very good with and time. And the uh, Chavez DVD is available for free as well. The documentary about uh, Hugo Chavez. Yeah. All right, folks. Thanks for listening. I uh, hope you enjoyed it. Thanks to our chatters, and we will see you next week. Have a good one. Bye-bye.